Thank you. It's good to be with you and to share the word of the Lord with you this morning. <clears throat> so hear the word of the Lord today from Genesis 17:15 through 22. God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her uh, Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and also give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, can a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old. Can Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. And God said, No, but your wife, Sarah, shall bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will bless him and make him fruitful and exceedingly numerous. He shall be the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this season next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. The word of the Lord. So I was talking with an acquaintance recently, and the topic came up about uh, our, our church affiliations, and he happened to be Baptist, which isn't super relevant, but when I told him I was free Methodist, he said, all I know about you free Methodists is that you like to ordain women. <laughs> it's a true story. And I don't know how he meant it, but I was flattered that that was our reputation. Because this is something that I myself have had a change of heart on in my life. And it came from a deeper reading of scripture. And I, 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 come, I came to the conclusion that women are called into leadership, not in spite of scripture and tradition, but because of it. And that conclusion also led me to read the scripture differently and to understand people differently. And so when I look at characters like Sarah, who's a character that if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard about and have an idea of, but you might not have sat with her story. There is a rich tradition of Sarah in Christian and Jewish literature, but we have often a very distilled, narrow, bullet point version of her that is often given in our modern American Christianity. So today we're going to look at, at Sarah and see how that informs leadership. Now your concept of the Sarah and Abraham story, which goes on for 13 chapters, might look something like this. Abraham gets this promise. Sarah's infertility is a threat to that. There's an uncomfortable thing with Hagar that we don't like to talk about. God helps out Abraham by getting Sarah pregnant, and Israel exists, and Abraham is a perfect saint. So um, I, I, 
we're going we're gonna to look at Sarah's side of the story, and I want to I briefly talk about how we read patriarchal narratives. And by patriarchal, I mean the stories of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, the founders, right? These characters are messy. Even the good ones make messy, weird, awkward, sometimes destructive decisions. None of these are are people that you want to fully emulate, you want to look at their conse- the consequences of their decisions, what that teaches us, what that informs, right? The other thing that you'll notice when you start to pay close attention to these patriarchal narratives is that it's often the women who are driving the narrative. Let me repeat that again. In the patriarchal narratives, it is often the women who drive the narrative. And if we don't pay attention to this, we might miss out on where God is working in the story. So I want to say that this is Sarah's story today and not Abraham's. So you might say, oh, you missed these whole sections of the story that I'm familiar with. And um, you were a little unfair to Abraham. If you want a sermon in defense of Abraham, there are many available for you today. This just isn't one of them. So today we're going to examine Sarah as one of the many women God has called and empowered to leadership throughout history. And in doing so, we're going to consider what it means that God is giving her her authority. How God allows Sarah to make her own decisions. And lastly, how Sarah provides a legacy that informs our own Christian tradition. Now, Sarah, Sarah's story is fundamentally a rags-to-riches story. And the best contemporary example I could think of, and it's a, it, it's a, it's a movie that I was introduced to recently called Princess Diaries. <laughs> where you have this character played by Anne Hathaway, Mia Thermopolis, who's a nobody in high school with a single mom, and she's unpopular, right? But surprise, it turns out, she's a princess in line for the throne of Genovia. (laughs) And this royalty is threatened multiple times because of shady romantic setups. But she perseveres and emerges as the crown queen of Genovia. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen So I want to get our our first slide up. I want to go through a quick overview of Sarah's life. Just some bullet points here, because we're going to be talking about these things. I want to leave this slide up in case it's been a while since you've read through the Genesis narrative, or this might be new to you. This is our framework of our story. Now, it goes over 13 chapters. We're not going to cover everything today, but we first hear Sarah in Genesis 11, where she's introduced as Abram's barren wife. In Genesis 12, we see that God promises to make a great nation, and then Abram takes her to Egypt. There's a lot going on in chapter 12. In Genesis 16, Hagar bears Ishmael. In Genesis 17 through 18, God affirms the covenant is for Sarai, but changes her name to Sarah. And then Genesis 20, uh, Sarah is given over by Abram uh, to Abimelech. So the Egypt thing happens all over again. Genesis 21, birth of Isaac, Ishmael and Hagar are sent away. 
What do, we, what do we know about Sarah or Sarai in the beginning? Now she's introduced to Sarai and unlike Abraham who gets this whole pedigree down from Noah and we just had to throw in, of course, that uh, Abraham, uh, that Sarai's mother-in-law through Abraham's name is Milka, which also means queen. <clears throat> so Abraham has this wonderful pedigree of a family, right? We don't get any background for Sarai's story. We don't know where she's from or uh, any of her family history. We do know that she is barren, which is an economic liability, right? Up until even in our culture, um, about 1900 or so, before then, having children was good for your bottom line. The more children you had, the more income you had for your family, the more people to work the land, it was a profitable thing to have children. Okay? Uh, now, as any parents know now, that is no longer the case. <laughs> and it's interesting, though, I just want to point out, it's interesting that we dwell in Sarah's infertility, but we don't like to talk about Abraham's infertility, which is brought up a number of times in the passage as well. God works miracles in both ways. She's also, she's also beautiful, and when you are in the narratives in the Bible, pay attention to when someone is called beautiful. It might seem like a good thing. It's a marker for tragedy. Something tragic is going to happen. That is just a consistent thing in the literature. The other thing that you note about Sarah, right after this promise happens, she's taken to Egypt, and taken is a verb that's often used with her. Abraham takes her places. She is property. <clears throat> she's taken to Egypt. She's given over to Abimelech. She is taken as property. And frankly, Abram doesn't seem to care much for her. He's content to let the promise go through Ishmael. <clears throat> Yet, God sees her. God sees her throughout the entire story. God shows up often for Sarah. If you're only paying attention to Abraham, you might miss it. We first notice in Egypt, God hears Sarah's call and is the one who rescues her from Egypt. It's not Abraham that comes to her rescue. It's God who hears her and brings her out and makes Pharaoh aware. In Genesis 17, God shows up and her name, he, he tells Abraham, don't call her Sarai anymore. You call her Sarah. Sarai doesn't mean anything that I'm aware of. Sarah is a word for queen, but it's a big one. Now, Abraham's mother is Milcah, which if I, let me, let me put it this way. If I say sultan, you're going to think of a ruler in the Middle East. If I say a czar, you're going to think of a ruler in Russia, right? But if I use words like queen and empress, those are more international, global terms, right? So, this word, Sarah, is from the Akkadian, which is the lingua franca of the day. It's a more universal title for queen. <clears throat> and that's what Abraham is to call her. God doesn't speak to Sarah in that. He tells Abraham, you call her queen. The naming is significant. If you want to know a, a good book that describes the significance of a name, read Madeline Langle's A Wind in the Door, where Mr. Jenkins is saved by the evil Ekthros by Meg calling him by his true name. My wife Hannah has a book signed by her uh, when she came to Westmont, and it says, Be a Namer. 
again, God doesn't leave Abraham in that passage before emphasizing her part in the promise. Then God shows up again in the next chapter in Genesis 18 to reaffirm this. What does Abraham do? He sends Sarah off to cook a non-kosher meal. What do the angels do in response to this act of hospitality? They say, where's Sarah? And they don't continue until Abraham points out that she's in the room. And then they reaffirm again that the promise would be fulfilled through Sarah and no one else. The promise was just as much to Sarah as it was to Abraham. Again, the promise was just as much for Sarah as for Abraham. So I want to look at the leadership, because as we talked about, things are messy. People have to make hard decisions, and they don't often make the right ones. I want to look at what decisions Sarah had to make. <clears throat> In Genesis 12, this is right after the promise is given, Abraham takes her to Egypt. And he asks her to say that she's the sister of Abraham and not the wife. So he asks her, this is the first time that we see she has a choice. This is a request, not a command. Abraham asks her, and what does she do? She chooses willfully to sacrifice herself for a time for Abram's safety, demonstrating her loyalty to Abram. She is placed in a harem, and she is briefly, technically, the wife of Pharaoh. But this is not the kind of queen that God has in mind for her to be. She doesn't actually have much power in that situation, right? We don't know anything about what Abram is doing, but the story tells us that God hears Sarah and responds and rescues her. We have another decision that's also very impactful for the story, and this is with Hagar in Genesis 16. Now, this is widely regarded as a poor decision. She, she asks Abraham, saying, hey, a baby hasn't come by yet. Why don't you just have a baby with, with uh, this, this servant girl that came with us from Egypt? Now, I want you to put yourself in her shoes for a moment. Pretend for a moment that you are the uh, a leader, a manager in a business, or maybe you're a, a pastor appointed somewhere. And keep in mind, this is now 10 years have gone by since this promise. Now imagine having to justify how things are going with your 10-year plan. <laughs> well, we're still waiting on God to show up for a miracle. So Sarah, what she does is she looks around at, with the resources that she's given and the wisdom that she has at the time and makes an executive decision. And it was her decision to make. And it does end badly. Later, uh, we find out in Genesis 21 that Sarah also makes the decision to remove Hagar and Ishmael from the family. Again, it was her decision to make. Now, God isn't absent through all this, right? God didn't just say, you're in charge, and uh, make it work, see you later. <clears throat> there, there, there are two big ramifications of this. First is, Abram was greed, doesn't want this to happen. <clears throat> he frankly likes Ishmael. 
God comes down and says, hey, listen and comply with Sarah. Now, a whole sermon could be made on God coming down from heaven and telling Abraham to listen to his wife. <laughs> but I also want to point out, God spends significant time with Hagar and Ishmael. God shows up and has a, a quite a long dialogue with Hagar and Ishmael and comes around the consequences of the decisions that Sarah makes while also reaffirming her as a leader, right? As leaders, we're going to mess up. And sometimes those decisions are going to impact others in adverse ways. That's part of the reality of leadership. That there are often messy decisions that need to be made that sometimes have severe consequences. And yet here we see that Sarah is not alone. God is present and working both in Sarah's life and in those impacted by her decisions. Regardless, God himself consistently advocates for her voice to be heard and backs up the one that he has called into authority. Now that we've talked about how Sarah became queen, and now that we've talked about her actions and leadership, it's time to take a look at her impact. Because the impact of her decisions well outlasted her time in life. As we know, through Isaac, we eventually get the birth of the nation of Israel. She has a rich place in Jewish and Christian tradition, even impacting our own history as American Christians and free Methodists. And now I want to I, I want to acknowledge that not everyone believes in the full equality of men and women as we do, but it isn't a new or modern stance. It's not an innovation specific to our denomination. Even even in our own country, some people uh, th th we have this we have this split, and those who do not believe in the equality of men and women might use First Peter three six that where he makes reference to Sarah called Abraham Lord as as an argument that women should be submissive or subservient or somehow less in authority to men. And so I want to point out the 19th century author Harriet Beecher Stowe. Now, if any of you took American history, that name might sound familiar to you because she wrote a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin, which enlightened the country's conscience about the plight of enslaved persons in the South. It was a precursor to the Civil War. She also liked to write commentary on the Bible as a woman in the 19th century in America. And regarding 1 Peter 3.6, she has this to say, and we have a slide for this. In turning to the narrative of the Old Testament, however, we are led to feel that in setting Sarah before wives as a model of conjugal behavior, no very alarming amount of subjection or submission is implied. The name Sarah means princess. And from the Bible, we infer that crowned with the power of eminent beauty and fully understanding the sovereignty it gave her over man, Sarah was virtually empress and mistress of the man she called Lord. She was a woman who understood herself and him and was too wise to dispute the title when she possessed the reality of sway. In this passage, we see that Sarah's story emboldened Harriet Beecher Stowe to bravely speak up about the injustices in her own time. She did not hold back on account of being a woman in 19th century America where she could not even vote. 
Sarah went on to influence Margaret Fell, who was married to George Fox. And this pair birthed the Quaker movement. Sarah was one of the figures that she focused on in Women Speaking Justified. That became an influential book for a person named B.T. Roberts, who wrote a book on ordaining women. B.T. Roberts was the founder of the Free Methodist Church. However, it might surprise you that despite intense lobbying from Roberts, the founding bishop of our denomination, and the fact that there were many women preachers in the earliest part of our movement, ordination of women regretfully didn't get officially recognized in the Free Methodist Church in his lifetime. Women were ordained as deacons as of 1911, but weren't fully recognized as elders until 1974. It is only in the past couple of years that we've consecrated our first woman elder, Bishop Linda Adams. If I'm being honest, there's still work to be done in our denomination on this point. Yet I hope our reputation and peculiar witness as the Free Methodist Church will continue to include that Free Methodists like to ordain women. As it is among our five freedoms. Now, for many of you who have now had the benefit of being blessed to attend a church with several women pastors, some of this might not be new to you, and you may be wondering what else this story has to offer. Sarah's calling and rise to authority is surprising and unlikely for her place and time and culture. And maybe you're here today and you feel like you're an unlikely leader. But you likely have more influence than you know. If you're a parent, if you're a supervisor at work, if you lead a Bible study, if you have a social media group that you're an administrator of, you have some kind of influence, right? I'm sure you can look behind you and see that there are one or two people who are following you and paying attention to you in some way in your sphere of influence in life. Your task is to realize what God has called you to and to faithfully lead at whatever it is, no matter how unlikely of a person you might think you are for the job. You can also expect that when you do this, you won't do it alone. God will show up in ways beyond what you can imagine, and you'll find that you may have influence well beyond what it may seem in our society. Now, I'm going off script for a moment. This might be a first service exclusive. <laughs> As I was praying about this morning, I thought I needed to include that maybe you're here today and you're discontent with decisions that are being made in your life by people above you somewhere. Maybe God is coming down to you today and saying, listen, there might be something bigger going on and God might have something for you in the midst of that. And I want to invite you to bring that situation to the altar this morning. And in closing, I want to recognize a person who stepped out in faith in our community that had a lasting impact on us. This past week, we celebrated the opening of Millie's House, an infant care center on our property. It is called Millie's House because in 1983, a woman named Millie Williams, no relation, offered to sell her house so that the church could purchase the land on which Millie's house and the parsonage now sit. The church was able to buy it debt-free, and Millie lived on the property. She took a step in faith that God would provide her housing needs 
And her legacy continued on after she passed as that house became the Cliff Drive Counseling Center and now will be used as our new infant care center. Look what God does to extend the influence of people stepping out in faith in our midst to fulfill their calling. How is God calling you to step out in faith today? Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.